Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershon. I teach film and literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the fall of 2021 uh, in a course on analysis and argument. And this week, easily one of my favorite lectures to give. It's one that I give throughout uh, my courses because it's something that I see students struggling with all over the place. It's coherence, really, but it's related to a concept uh, in uh, the book They Say, I Say, connecting the parts, inserting transitions. Transitions, transitioning. This takes us all the way back to that rant that I gave about five paragraph essays. Um, it's not really the five paragraph essay that I have a problem with. An introduction? Three points and a conclusion? Heck, there are lots of uh, academic papers that have an introduction, three points, and a conclusion. One of the, one of the uh, academic scholarly sources that I use in my uh, English 104, which is a cross-media studies course. It's one of our introductory English courses that, courses that follows um, English 102, uh, the course that this lecture is for. Uh, one of the articles that I use in that course has a three-point structure. So the three-point structure isn't so much my issue as the idea that that those three points should somehow just be as distinct as possible, like all on the same topic, but not really going anywhere. And even when all three points are headed in the same direction, there's no strong coherence of argument. That is to say that that one concept, the first point maybe doesn't lead to the second point, maybe doesn't lead to the third. Maybe the third point is the strongest one of the bunch. And this is something that we'll talk uh, about more later on when we talk about shaping essays, the art of shaping an essay. And that's, um, that's the second uh, phase of the writing process. First phase, um, planning, gathering information, gathering sources, and then deciding on your focus, right? And then we move on to shaping those ideas. What point goes first? What point goes second? What point goes third? Now, because my students are writing a synthesis based on other people's information, I didn't want to go with uh, which point is the first one, which point is the second one, which point is the third one, because potentially the arguments that they are working with suggest that structure. But rather, I wanted to talk about the idea of coherence via uh, connecting the parts, as they say, I say, puts it. So the sentence that, uh, that I want to play with a little bit here is this one where Graf and Birkenstein say, when you write a sentence, you create an expectation in the reader's mind. We're just going to stop there. That's actually mid-sentence, but it's a full thought. When you write a sentence, you create an expectation in the reader's mind. So if, for example, I say, I'm going to go check the weather, and then I leave the room, you have an expectation that I'm coming back to tell you what the weather is, even though I have not expressly stated that I am going to do so. We're constantly engaged in expectation in conversation. 
when we're listening to someone else talk, we're sitting there going, I think I know where they're going next. I think I know where they're going next. We do the same thing when we watch uh, movies or TV shows or we read books. To some degree, we're playing an expectation game with what's going to come next in a video game. Um, we're always we're always anticipating. Um, it's a, you know, probably related strongly to, uh, the way in which the human species has survived as long as it has. We, you know, I'm expecting that just around this corner, there's an animal that will eat me. Um, I'm expecting that there may be danger ahead. I'm expecting, you know, whatever it is that, that seems to be on the horizon. And when we write, we are communicating. And so when we write a sentence, just like in a conversation with someone else where we say something and they think, oh, I think I know what they're going to say next, we create an expectation in our reader's mind. And we should never forget that because if we just sort of willy-nilly throw a bunch of sentences onto the page and we're like, well, there it is. My essay is done. And I've had students say this to me. All of the information was there, Dr. Pershawn, wasn't it? And I would say, yes, but it was completely disorganized. It was like I had all the puzzle pieces, but you hadn't put it together. It was like, like you handed me, you know, that's, that's the essay that you've handed me. It's a puzzle you can put together. There you go, Dr. Pershawn. Uh, happy birthday. You've got a puzzle. Um, so when we write a sentence, we must remember that we're creating expectation in our reader's mind for what is going to come next. Okay. That's what happens there. When we write a sentence, we create an expectation in the reader's mind that there's going to be something coming just around the corner. So let's take a look at the example from They Say, I Say. It's a very basic one, but I think it's super instructive. And at the very least, it's a little bit funny and it is memorable. Spot is a good dog, sentence one. And we've got an expectation that what? What's going to come next? Uh, let's see what they say. He has fleas. That wasn't what I was expecting. Why? Because the statement spot is a good dog creates an expectation that the next sentence is going to demonstrate why Spot is a good dog. And he has fleas. Like, imagine this was a classified ad. This is one of those ads on, on Facebook Marketplace. You know, we're giving away a dog. His name is Spot. He's a good dog. He has fleas. The only person who answers that ad is an entomologist, someone who studies insects. Because they're like, oh, hey, you know, it's like having a little farm. It's like an ant farm. It's like a flea farm. You know, give me that dog. You know, lots of lots of gnats and stuff that I can pull off of their uh, surface, right? And so what we end up with is this first sentence, second sentence structure where we've got a concept. Spot is a good dog. He has fleas and those things don't cohere. They don't lead from one to the next. And in the slide here, I've got a red arrow for the first sentence and a green arrow for the second sentence to indicate that what we have here is a dissonance of concept, that there isn't this coherence. It's not flowing from one sentence to the next. And some of you are sitting there and you're going, God, this is incredibly rudimentary. Okay, come on now, stick with me because this is just, you know, explaining the basics of this. And I got to tell you, I see a lack of coherence, a lack of transitions, a lack of flow on more essays than I can count. 
because students are like, I got my ideas down. I got my ideas down. Heck, when I'm writing my own stuff for publication, I find myself going, wow, I really took a leap of logic there. Sometimes the Grand Canyon size from this concept to this other concept without transitioning my reader through those changes. So again, when you write a sentence, you create an expectation in the reader's mind. And how does a sentence end? That the next sentence will in some way echo and be an extension of the first. But again, this chapter you know, says, hey, insert transitions. And I get students inserting transitions willy-nilly without considering the consequences of those transitions. And so I end up with sentences like this. Spot is a good dog. For example, he has fleas. No, this is not helpful, right? Unless, again, unless we're shipping him out to people who want to study the fleas, this is not a good dog. We, you know, and it's not really Spot's fault. You know, maybe his, it's, it's probably his, his owner's. His owner needs to take better care of him. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we need to get that first sentence talking to that second sentence. We need a transition that gets us from sentence one to sentence two in a way that is an echo or an extension of the first. Spot is a good dog. And we go with even though he has fleas. That's a transition that moves us from that first concept to the second concept. And you got to take this and you've got to port it over to your own writing now. Okay. And you might be like, I, I don't know. I don't know anything about transitions. That's okay. That's why you do the readings that I assign. And they say, I say it's chapter eight has a, has a gold mine of information, uh, but there's also stuff that you'll be able to find in the Canadian Writer's Reference. And for those of you who are tuning in who are not my students, heck, just Google it. Google transition terms and phrases, and you're going to get these wonderful lists that break it down in terms of intent. What kind of a transition do we need here? Hear me loud and clear. You can't just throw in any transition and have it work. It's the old, it's the old sort of hammy, cheesy, uh, don't put in a therefore unless you know what it's there for. Baha, baha, ha, right? But that's true. Don't put in a therefore if it's not, if it's not required. You can't just go therefore. There are also instances where students will say, however, when they didn't actually mean to pivot the concept. They don't mean to move, you know, or they'll say accordingly, but it's not really an extension of what's been said prior to that. Our sentences need to flow from the expectation that we are creating in the reader's mind. They must be an echo and an extension of whatever has come before, especially if the second one takes your argument in a new direction, as is certainly the case with Spot is a good dog, he has fleas but you're working with concepts that are similar in this respect in that you're going to be jumping between, say, Alperovitz and Asada, and they don't, they don't agree with each other. And so sometimes you're going to have information in the same sentence that isn't going to cohere unless you put in these transition terms and phrases. you got to go, after you finish doing like your first draft, you go in and you do this transitioning work because, you know, you know where you want to take your argument, but your reader doesn't. And it's your job to guide your reader through the changes. I think back to my rant on the five paragraph essay, three points, right? Greece, uh, Greek government, 
Greek mythology, Greek food. How would you transition between those? I, you know, I could ostensibly see how we would get from Greek government to Greek mythology if we were talking about the hierarchy of the gods, but I have absolutely no idea how we'd transition from those things to Greek food. That is not a coherent essay. So transitions can only get you so far. And if you get to a point in your essay where you're like, I can't figure out how to span the distance between this point and the next point, then you may need to consider restructuring your essay, move the content around, or you may be missing a huge chunk of information, or maybe that last point just doesn't belong there at all. And it's just killer filler. Okay. They say, I say recommends that to, to create coherence in an essay, we use transition terms, using transition terms and phrases. Uh, and then it gives a list of these and different types of transitions that we might be using, like a transition of addition. Also, and besides, transitions of example, for example, specifically, transitions of elaboration, actually, in short, that is, transitions of comparison. Likewise, similarly, transitions of contrast, although, or conversely, transitions of cause and effect. Accordingly, hence, I don't use hence very much. I feel like hence is a little on the pretentious side, but eh, maybe you want to use a hence every now and again. Throw a hence in there. The more that I say hence, the weirder the word feels. Uh, concession. Making a concession, I concede, admittedly, right? Admittedly, or granted, conclusion, the concluding transitions as a result, in short, right? Summing up things. So, and, and don't just throw in those in shorts if you're not actually going to summarize some of the content, right? Don't say as a result, unless you're going to walk to the result. Just because it's the last thing in your paper doesn't even mean that you're concluding anything. That's something to keep in mind is that you may not have arrived at a conclusion. So don't throw in a transition that makes it seem as though you did because it's bad writing. You're not really thinking about what you're saying. Okay, you can't just throw words on a page. You can't just and, and expect them to be sentences. And you can't just throw concepts on a page and expect it to amount to an argument. Okay, you have to, this has to be going somewhere. And that's something that we're going to talk about in an upcoming lecture. Does your work even have a point? Is this going anywhere, right? Number two, we use pointing words, words that point around. And this also helps create coherence because what you're doing for your reader is you're reminding them of stuff you already said. Now, you don't have to overdo this. Your papers are only like, like five pages long. If you're writing longer essays, you will especially need to do this frequently. And to those of you who are planning on writing books, you should remind your readers of things you've already said. Never assume that your reader has memorized everything that you've said. Think about how you read, right? Think about how you read. When you read, are you like taking in all the information or are you just, you know, gleaning little bits and pieces? You have to read and reread to absorb a lot of that information at the level that it seems to me when I read a lot of student papers that they expect their readers to read at. So let's take a look at this is actual student work here. 
Um, and, I, and the bold stuff is uh, the types of pointing words. Following the introduction of his thesis and overall intent of his essay, so right away it sounds like the student has already talked about the introduction of Sutsui's article, Sutsui's speech. Following the introduction of his thesis and overall intent of his essay, that's a little bit redundant. We don't need to say thesis and overall intent because those are more or less the same things. But nevertheless... The student is saying, hey, the thing that I was just talking about, took a paragraph or so to explain that. Following those things, Sutsui explores how the Godzilla films were created, rather than saying Sutsui explores how they were created. They, a lot of students will just throw in pronouns. We're going to talk about that in just a second with pro pointing words. But instead of relying on a pronoun, the student is being very particular. The Godzilla films. Right? Not only does he provide insight into the thought processing behind the film, and now there's a little bit of a dissonance. And so I'm using this as an instructive moment to say, okay, if you say the Godzilla films and then you say the film, that could be confusing for your reader. So maybe you need some stronger pointing words. Maybe you need to say the thought processing behind Gojira, or you know, to use the Americanization, Godzilla, 1954, right? Um, but he also explains the historical context with which the film was created. So there's that dissonance. His student talks about the Godzilla films and then just talks about the one film, which, by the way, is similar to what Sutsui does. But just because Sutsui makes that error doesn't mean that you should be making that same error. And really, he doesn't. He identifies, you know, the Godzilla series versus the Godzilla film. Here, this student needed to take their first instance of the film and use the particular instance, Godzilla, right? Gojira. So, but it's still, these are pointing words. This is, this is the, the student is trying at the very least to include pointing words, which will help their reader to understand precisely what they're talking about. And pointing words point all over the place. You can be like three paragraphs in and you're pointing, you know, a, a lot of students will sort of think like you just pointing back upwards. They'll take that example that I just gave with the following the introduction of the thesis and overall intent of his essay. And they'll be like, oh, so I'm just supposed to remind you of what I just said. That sounds an awful lot like what what we were told to do with like concluding sentences, for example. That's an oversimplification of what we should be doing with pointing words. And even that, that concept of like, you know, take your, your introductory sentence and copy it and put it in the very last part of your paragraph and, and revise it a little bit and that'll be your concluding sentence for your paragraph. That's a rudiment. That's like the five paragraph essay and you need to be moving beyond it because um, that's super clunky. But... It is moving towards the idea of pointing words and transitioning, of creating a sense of coherence that, you know, what your, you know, that your paragraph sort of holds together in a way. But it's more than just signaling what happened in the last paragraph. It could be all over the place. Like you could reference something from the introduction in your third paragraph. You could reference something uh, from the second paragraph in your uh, fifth paragraph. You could, and you should, and we'll talk about this more in uh, upcoming lecture on introductions and conclusions, you should reference your introduction in your conclusion. Why? It creates a sense of strong cohesion. It pulls the essay together. It creates a sense of there was a start, there was a finish, and everything in between had something to do with those things. You're not just doing some fancy schmancy introduction where you're like, let me get your attention. 
I get a lot of introductions like that. They're like, holy cow, can you believe what I'm about to do in the following essay? And I'm like, oh my God, it's amazing. And then they never deliver on that. And you get to the conclusion, they don't even mention the fantastic thing. And I'm like, well, that was disappointing. You know, where if you make a promise conceptually, thematically, whatever, in your first paragraph, you better make good on it by the end of the essay or I'm going to be like, oh, so disappointed or like, why didn't you do what you said you would? You promised. You know, it's like, it's like Obi-Wan screaming at, at Anakin, you know, you were the chosen one. Anyway, use pointing words. It helps your reader connect the flow of everything on in, in, in your essay. Um, but it's dangerously easy, Graf and Birkenstein say, it's dangerously easy to insert pointing words into your text that don't refer to a clearly defined object, thinking that because the object you have in mind is clear to you, it will also be clear to your readers. Let's just do a great big stop here. And because I don't think I've talked about this in any of the recorded lectures so far, I probably talked about it in the classroom because there's a certain number of things that I ring the gong on all semester. And this is one of them. Never assume your reader knows what you know. Never, ever assume your reader knows what you know. So as you go to do like final revisions, especially, you should be thinking to yourself, do all my pointing words actually point where I want them to? Specifically, we're talking about pronouns. Pronouns have antecedents, these, these things that they point to, right? A pronoun points to a proper noun. He will point to a name. She will point to a name. They can point to a name. So if you've got a pronoun, it should be close enough to that name that there's no question, no confusion, no ambiguity about where that pronoun is pointing. Okay, so here's some more actual student work. He discusses the prevalence of the Godzilla franchise while attempting to relate this to his audience by acknowledging its familiarity in American popular culture. Now, it's is trying to point to the prevalence of the Godzilla franchise. That's what it's trying to point to. That's the only thing that this, that's the only way this sentence makes sense. But grammatically speaking, it's not actually doing that. It's pointing to his audience. Okay? It's is closest to his audience. And consequently, that's what it's pointing at. It, it, it wants to point to the prevalence of the Godzilla franchise, but it's not. And so we need to be very careful as we're working on our writing, especially if you're doing a lot of copying and pasting, because you, you, cop, you, you might like cut a section, you might cut the, the antecedent, the, the, the thing that the pronoun is trying to point to, you take the prevalence of the Godzilla franchise, and you put it somewhere else entirely in the essay, and now that it's is just standing there on its own, and it's not pointing where it needs to be. But the reader thinks it's pointing to, say, his audience. And they're confused. So you have to take the time to ensure that your reader knows where those pronouns are pointing. Or where your pointing words are pointing. You do the heavy lifting so your reader doesn't have to. That's the writer's job. It's not like when we speak. 
It's not like when we speak where we're like, oh, gosh, I wish I could take that back. Oh, with your writing, you can until you submit it, of course. And that's why you want to do more than just a first draft. It's why you don't want to wait until the last moment to turn your writing in because you want to make sure that you have enough time to do all that work. So we want to make sure that we are using transitions, but we want to make sure we're using the right transitions. We want to use pointing words, but we want to make sure that they're actually pointing to where we're indicating. And we want to repeat key terms and phrases. I love key terms and phrases. It's one of my favorite concepts ever. Why? Because I hate thesaurizing. I hate thesaurizing. I don't like it. And I don't know why it gets taught anywhere in the universe. Because it doesn't make any sense. Because really good writing doesn't do it. Where instructors will say, don't use the same word twice, you know, in the course of the essay. That's bananas. Like, just setting pronouns and, say, definite articles like the or indefinite articles like, like a and an, uh, you know, all sorts of linking words aside... What are you going to do with giant monster the third or fourth time in? Hmm? Like, suddenly you're digging into Japanese, daikaiju. Ha <laughs> ha! But does your reader know what that is? You'd actually have to put in brackets to say, Oh, by the way, that's a giant monster. Why don't you just say giant monster every time? Or, hey, let's talk about atomic weapons. Huh? Or the island of Japan. Or the nation of America. Uh, the United States, there's only so many ways you can say it. And at some point, you just got to use those key terms and phrases. When I was taking a course on uh, writing fiction, and I mentioned this in an earlier lecture, but this is the, this is the full story. Um, when I was taking a course on writing fiction, our instructor, who was a published fiction writer, said, use the word said. Don't use expostulated. Don't use expressed. Don't use hissed, especially if they're not hissing. If there are no sibilances in the dialogue and you say they hissed, how do they do it? Don't say, you know, whatever, it, you know, he shouted if he's not actually shouting, right? But, but we're taught, we're taught in grade school to grow our vocabulary. And so they'll do things like, you know, like give me three words that basically mean the same. And then students start writing that way like it was the black stygian dark night. One, one. We don't need black, stygian, and dark. We only need one of those to tell us that it's dark. And if it's night, do you really need to tell us that? You got to stop and ask yourself, do you? Key terms and phrases. Constellation. This is a Graf and Birkenstein say, develop a constellation of key terms and phrases. And that's what this teacher was basically saying to us. A key term and phrase in writing fiction is said. If you thesaurize endlessly with the word said, sooner or later, and here's a dirty joke that's not going to end up completely out on the in internet, but I don't care because this is a good way to remember this. Sooner or later, you are going to get to the synonym for said that is ejaculation. 
Ejaculation. Yes, once upon a time, we used to ejaculate in the middle of sentences. Uh, really old pulp fiction, Doc Savage in particular, written by a guy named Kenneth Robson. He ejaculated right in the middle of the text. And, you know, you can sort of hear the <laughs> tittering going on off to the side in this moment. But, hey, nobody wants ejaculation on their paper, so don't do this. Use key terms and phrases. Develop. Here's Graf and Birkenstein. Develop a constellation of key terms and phrases, including their synonyms and antonyms. In so doing, you bind the passage together into a unified whole that, despite its complexity and sophistication, stays focused over its entire length. Key terms and phrases. It's an atomic bomb. It does not need to be a weapon of mass destruction. It does not need to be a nightmare from the skies. This isn't poetry, you guys. This is, and even poetry should not be written that way. We want to choose the best words and we want to communicate in the best way possible. And endlessly thesaurizing doesn't achieve that outcome. Endlessly thesaurizing does the reverse. If you change the words that you're going to be using over and over and over again throughout your essay, every time you use them, needlessly so, your reader has to actually stop and parse the information on the page to say, are they still talking about what they were just talking about? Or is this something else? They have to process it every time. Now, at the same time, you don't want your essay to be overly repetitious. So if you've got atomic bomb twice in the same sentence, well, yeah, maybe you should use a synonym, but maybe you should just revise that sentence for concision because there's a good chance you're just being wordy. And finally, repeat yourself, but with a difference. That's sort of what we were just talking about. Repeat yourself, but with a difference. And I love the metaphor of rock climbing here, wall climbing. Um, because in rock climbing, you're supposed to have uh, three points of contact. You uh, arguably have four limbs on the wall. And, you know, when you're, when you're just hanging there, you got all four connected. But when you're moving you got to let go somewhere. Your foot has to come up. One of your hands has to let go. And at that point, one part of your body is moving forward, but there's three points of contact with where you've just been. And that's a good way to think about writing. Don't make giant leaps. I mean, there are people who can do this stuff, right? They anchor themselves and then they kind of hoist and they do a jump. But those people are artful climbers. And if people do it in their writing, they're probably artful writers as well. So at some point in your career as a writer, maybe you can make that big leap because you have a really good reason for doing so. You want to kind of throw the reader off for just a moment and then you're going to come back and talk about the thing that you just were, but you want to disrupt their reading experience a little bit. But while you're at this point and, dare I say, as long as you're at McEwen, because there are very few professors who are going to appreciate that kind of stylistic creative flourish. You should be acting like a new climber. Three points of contact, one moving forward, right? So we echo, this is Graf and Birkenstein now taking, I'm taking the metaphor and I'm, I'm just going with what Graf and Birkenstein say. Echo what you've said. 
while simultaneously moving your text into new territory. Does that mean you need to endlessly repeat what you've already stated? No, but you shouldn't be abandoning it wholesale to jump to a new concept. The essay needs to flow. Do not make huge content leaps because when you do, most of the time, you will leave your reader behind. And whenever you do that, that's a mistake. That's an error. Students are always like, I, he never really explains, you know, what I was supposed to do on the paper. And I'm like, I've been telling you, uh, you know, an awful lot what to do on the paper. And this is one of those moments. Do not go making huge leaps in logic. Transition. Help your reader. Walk them through your argument like you are the, you know, guide at a museum exhibit moving your, you know, uh, guests through the argument that you're making, through the exhibition. Don't leave them behind. Use transitions, but make sure they're the right ones. Use pointing words, but make sure they indicate what you want them to. Repeat key terms and phrases. Don't go thesaurizing. Don't go looking for polysyllabic synonyms to impress your profs with your vocabulary. Impress us instead with your ideas and repeat yourself but with a difference because good writing doesn't assume that the reader picks up on the concept the first time around we've to some degree we got to hammer it over and over again just like as some of you are watching this video there's a few concepts that i've been hammering over and over again throughout the semester transitioning is certainly going to be one of those we're going to be coming back to this stuff again we're going to be talking about shaping in an upcoming lecture but for now, you want to just go with these things of, of understanding that your essay has to flow. There has to be a shape to it. It's like a journey. It's, you know, that wall climbing thing. There should be a start. There should be a finish. But the route between those things should not be a series of jumps, but rather a journey of steps.